Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hi, I'm Manan Parikh, analyst at GTM Research. You're listening to Suncast, one of my go-to resources for insights from today's solar industry leaders. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and actions shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle, a battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. Hey friend, really glad to have you join us again today. Today, we have a slight departure from the usual format. No, it's not in Spanish like last week's episode, but it also doesn't follow the typical question flow that I've used in the first 20 episodes. This is the third in our LATAM Founders series, which we're producing in collaboration with Enphase Energy. And in prep for these interviews with Galt and Enlight and Eco Partners and InSolar and so many others that are going to come out, I asked my friend Luis over at Enphase if there were anyone on his team who was able to articulate well the challenges that they come across in the field, especially from the perspective of financing for commercial industrial or C&I customers. And he pointed me to Jake Hoppy. I, like probably many of you, had never heard of Jake. And after you hear today's episode, you may be glad that we now know who he is. I was originally going to use my call with Jake just to backfill with some sound bites on the episodes, like episode 17 with Jose Zambrano as a way to provide a third voice explaining some of the intricacies of financing these CNI deals. But after I heard the interview again, I knew it was plenty good enough to stand on its own merits. So, you won't hear the typical intro you're used to after the music segue, but I do hope you'll forgive the lack of polish and soak in the wealth of knowledge. Today on Suncast, you'll meet Jake Hoppy, who's currently working in business development for Spruce Finance, but Jake got his start in the solar industry at Enphase. And from what I can tell, he was instrumental in helping get some of their pivotal early projects across the finish line, especially in Latin America. He's also been very hands-on with areas of business like working with underwriters, think Moody's, for example, on evaluating the underlying risks of assets that Enphase had deployed for large IPPs looking to go public with their portfolios. I've said it before, But you'll want to take your pencil and paper out, take some notes on this one. If you're anything like me, you'll have to go back and listen to it again as Jake dispels wisdom at almost every turn in the conversation. Thanks again for taking the time to be here. Hope you enjoy this week's episode of Suncast with Jake Hoppy. It's funny, it's unlike a neurotypical episode for me where I would sort of tee it up. Um, so if you could uh, give me an idea of, so that mainly so I understand and can ask questions in a better light, what was your role at Enphase? Yeah, so my role, I mean, it, it's very related to the topic, which is 
one of the key things that we focused on on the business development team was characterizing the role of microinverters and really the role of technology in general in the performance of the system as a financial asset. So the key question that we spent a lot of time with on the business development team trying to answer was how does the choice of technology impact the returns and translate into more value? Anytime you're doing a value sale with a microinverter, you're gonna be paying more upfront costs, but what were some of the, the downstream cash flow issues that would be changed as a result? So we were looking a lot at you know, um, uh, energy harvest, looking a lot at sort of replacement and the way that you would perform O&M and then thinking a lot about sort of bankability and, and certain other value-added services we could be adding to make it a better financial product, make a solar system a better financial product. Right. Okay. What were, what were some of the main uh, hurdles that you feel like you guys solved? So a, a lot of what we solved was really changing so the energy harvest is always, you know, a big variable in, in predicting, uh, you know, how much yield you would get from a solar system. So that's very specific plant by plant, especially when we talk about CNI. But one of the big things that we got folks to focus on was the replacement cycle, which is really natural for microinverters where you have 25 years, uh, especially when we're, you know, we're talking a little bit more on the CNI focus here. Um, or I'm talking a little more on CNI focus here, but it's shifting people away from this idea that you've got to use your normal O&M reserve model and equipment reserve model, anticipating that strings will will break in somewhere around year 10 to 14. Right. And shifting that to a model where every year you're going out and rolling out uh, to the site and you're making a couple inverter changes where those need to happen, but there is no full-scale swap of the... Uh, of the microinverters over the useful life of the plant, you know, over the 25 year horizon. So that was the, that was the piece where we had the biggest wins in educating it. So it's a very simple concept, but educating the full stack of participants in the market to value that differently in their financial models is very complex. So we would be engaging with, you know, underwriters. Uh, so folks helping take, projects through the securitization, or not projects, but portfolios through the securitization process. We'd be engaging with Moody's and S&P and helping them understand from a rating perspective, uh, working with the independent engineers to communicate around that message, and then ultimately the, the portfolio sponsors uh, to adjust their models. So very simple core concept, but very difficult to move people away from an established modeling or perspective on modeling that ended up having, you know, unlocking pretty large amounts of like IRR when you when you make those sorts of changes. Can, can you be can you be a little more specific on that? I'd love to hear numbers if you have examples. Uh, so I mean the typical IRR boost would be around, you know, depending on the project, around half a percent to one percent, depending on what was being reserved. Mm. And so when I think what was really interesting and what we found is that people work so hard. You know, you look at the securitizations that have come through the market and they have gone through such laborious efforts to increase the advance rate uh, for the securitization. So in other words, you know, the amount of debt that you're able to leverage onto the asset over looking at the cash flows over the system life. Yeah, that's the advance rate. Yeah, that's the advance rate. So in a securitization, you know, a lot of focus is on the advance rate. And 
but and so it, even if you're not securitizing, it's really sort of the amount of debt that the cash flows of that project can support. And so we would see, you know, five to ten percent increases in the amount of debt that the project can support by shifting the the replacement model to uh, a model that works with microinverters versus what would work with string inverters. And if you increase the advance rate or you know the amount that you can borrow on the cash flows of that system, then you're really decreasing the uh, amount of equity that you have to invest to own kind of the residual cash flows. And so your equity returns increase substantially, um, you know, half a percent to one percent. And it was a really simple concept to unlock that. And when you look at, you read through sort of what gets done by Solar City and their securitizations about how they have to get reinsurance, the large amounts of reserves that they have to set aside, and all of these different aspects that they've gone through to, to increase the rating, lower the debt cost, and increase the advance rate. And this was like such a simple concept that is supported by independent engineers uh, that they could be plugging in and, and achieving the same result as a lot of the more complex sort of financial engineering that they were trying to do. So that's what was, so it was a very simple concept, but very complex to get it embedded. And we were successful with uh, a large independent power producer who went through the securitization process and had a different reserve model for their end phase equipment. Yeah. And then it's just sort of slowly getting that trickled out to the rest of the market. So it's, they had about, uh, I can't remember the exact numbers, but they got a securitization rated and they went through the pre-sale process, but it never got fully priced for, because it had a ton of SATCON in it. Oh God. So there was a mixed <laughs> portfolio yeah, between SATCON and Enphase. Uh, but the Enphase portion, they got this different reserve treatment for, which was like our ultimate success was and what we were dying was to have that get you know publicly rated and discussed in the um, in the presale agreement, so that we could really have something to put in front of other partners. And then we've been hoping that Vivint would be able to do this as well. And we've had verbal confirmation that you know from a back leverage standpoint they get that value recognized. But you know the presale reports are such gold because they they really lay out exactly what the reserve requirements are and why they are what they are and. Um, in, in a very public forum that's been reviewed by you know third-party engineers and by the could, un, and by the rating agencies. Could you give me an example, um, or even a link to one that I could read that would help me understand what you're talking about? Like, if imagine if you're someone who's never done this before, like what would be a good thing to read to really understand the the context? Yeah, so I could send over some of the pre-sale reports. Uh, and I think if I were to characterize what they do is they, they really take what is a wide variation of practices, right, in the solar industry that are, so let's stick to sort of residential. You know, you have this, this set of installation and cash flow modeling, et cetera, and it, it's a group, it's, you know, a very risk-averse group, which is S&P or Kroll, who is going to look at the practices of that bundle of solar systems just as a financial asset and trying to understand what the cash flows of that asset will be and which aspects of those cash flows will go to the bondholders who buy these securitized assets. So what it is, is it's taking you know, a lot of, this is the way I think about it, it's taking a lot of the industry practices and reducing them to like, Let's put these in financial terms that all of our financial investors who are investing in automobile um, 
bonds and you know invest looking at all these different sort of bond portfolios let's help them really understand how to compare the cash flows of a portfolio of solar systems with the cash flows that they would get from these other assets and we'll do it in such a conservative way that we're going to look at the technology we're going to look at the installation practices we're going to look at the variability of sunshine we're going to we're going to stress all of these different elements that comprise those cash flows so that we're really confident and we can give our A-rated, you know, we can say that these bonds are A-rated and priced uh, according to another A-rated bond from a different asset class and have total confidence that, uh, that we'll achieve those cash flows. And so that's sort of what they are in general. And then they go into a lot of detail about how they've substantiated their claims and what the different elements that they looked at to understand what those that cash flow would be over the life of the portfolio. So the really gold as far as you know trying to think of what are sort of conservative best practices about valuing solar systems stated in a really public way. Because otherwise you have, you know, Gulf has its financial model. Uh, where I'm at now, Spruce, you know, we have our financial model. Everyone's got slightly different variations of what they think of as uh, as the cash flows of the system. Right. Man. Yeah, if you could send me a couple of examples, that'd be great. I, I would probably just pick one that I felt like I understood the most. I still don't understand 100% like what it is that you were trying to explain. Uh, I'm going to have to, <laughs> I'm personally going to have to go back and listen to it. Uh, it's so fun listening yeah. to someone who has thought about it for so long. Uh, but I'm curious if through that process, and maybe you already answered it and you could just redact it, um, yeah. what you felt like were both the key criteria for getting those deals financed and, and or securitized, however you think is the most important, and then what were the yeah. largest obstacles that your customers faced for getting in-phase specific projects financed? Yeah, so I think uh, we'll focus on finance generally because I think that'll be more interesting. You know, Securitization is sort of an esoteric area of, of the finance it and is. <laughs> you know, folks like Ensolar and others are, are really focused on, you know, how do we get this commercial deal financed? Right. And, uh, and so I didn't spend huge amounts of, I mean, I spent some time trying to help them arrange financing on some of these projects, looked a lot in Puerto Rico, uh, at, at commercial, you know, working with Nextility and some others to try and understand one that, you know, to be more active in the area and to look at some of the projects that our Enphase installers were working on. So folks like Maximo would get a commercial deal and we'd try and make sure we could find some options of financing it. Um, so I can, I can talk a bit about it mm -hmm. from that perspective. And, and you know it from your perspective at Iwana, but bankability of the off-taker and, you know, you have these, in Latin America, you have these different elements of risk, I would say, that a normal financier in the U.S. is going to look at. Uh, one is that they probably don't totally understand the country or sort of the the macroeconomic environment. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, so that's both sort of country and maybe utility. So if we take a look at something like Puerto Rico, you know, there's not really country risk, right. but there's this question of what's going on with PREPA and how that's going to translate to potential future changes in um in the net metering type of environment, which you know is a fundamental subsidy. And so we would spend a lot of time trying to get folks thinking about you know, why that wasn't as large a risk as they think it might be, but was ultimately very difficult. And so the next layer would be you know, how much of the, the actual use, the actual energy on that site 
am I offsetting? So I'm not taking that utility risk, mm. but you know, the majority of the energy is going directly into the, the usage load of the, of the commercial offtaker. So that was one way that we would you know, try and look around is trying to really understand what the fundamental value was, regardless of what the utility did or regardless right. of what the sort of macro environment was doing. Mm. And then it was looking at the bankability of the optaker. I mean, that's just so key in any of this is just trying to understand how long they've been around, you know, uh, why do we think they're going to be around over the 20 years of this asset? Um, and that's, that's true in the U.S. That's true mm -hmm. elsewhere. You know, from a fundamental standpoint on C&I, deals getting financed. Right. But then I think the, the challenge that we had with Enphase was always that production, so the two, you know, Enphase is going to cost more. So the, the two key areas where we're talking about making that up is in the operations and maintenance and inverter equipment replacement over the lifetime of that asset, and then product upfront production. And I think that we could usually get folks pretty uh, squarely on board with the idea that you weren't going to have to replace this equipment, even though, you know, whether it had a 25-year warranty or a 10-year warranty, that the fundamental equipment doesn't wear out uh, over 10 years. Right. You know, it wears out over 30, 40 years. Uh, it's a totally different sort of cycle. So we could usually get people comfortable with that because we had a, a huge amount of third-party engineering substantiated reports. The two pieces that were always a little tough was uh, was production modeling because it's such an art to begin with that masquerades as a science uh, mm -hmm. that there really are sort of old production modeling rules of thumb that are difficult to move people away from and each project is unique. So even if you supply all of the kind of third-party engineering and side-by-side -side studies, you can do that all you want, it's very hard for people to necessarily adapt that to this specific project and say, okay, we estimate that this project will generate 3% more energy harvest uh, than, than it would have with a string inverter. So that was always, uh, you know, a fundamental challenge just because you have uh, the challenge of production modeling and you've got to convince sort of the developer and you've got to convince the financier. So we spent a lot of time on that. Mm. And then... Changing the fundamental O&M model, you know, I see this actually here at, at Spruce, is you just have these legacy assumptions that you, you know, I think of it as sort of, you know, you've got, you're cramming new technology into an old financial model, and the technology changes often more quickly than the modeling changes, even though the modeling is so simple to change. But to really understand the, the differences, you know, the impact of being able to roll a truck just once a year and not having any... Um, reactive operations and maintenance costs was, is huge if you talk to a plant operator, but if you talk to a financier, they don't understand that these reactive O&M costs are such a, a drain on their O&M budget. What they look at is they see two cents a watt per year or some you know reductionist version of what the O&M costs would be. Right. They don't really understand how that filters into, or you know what, what comprises that two cents a year. So getting them to move off that two cents per watt per year was very challenging and, and um, when you say getting them to move off of it meaning like to go down to one cent a year or something like that yeah exactly go to one cent or, or think about you know what the different fleet maintenance issues would be resolved by by changing technology exactly going to one cent and so we had to 
you know, we ended up acquiring an O&M provider and putting our money where our mouth was at Enphase and saying, look, we can manage this for much less than what you're likely to, you know, be, be offered from other parties. Um, and there were still challenges there because O&M is just such a varied business and O&M in different markets like Latin America, you know, it doesn't cost you very much to roll a truck sometimes. God, I totally miss that to you guys bought next phase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, that was one of the first things I worked on. And that was a really interesting acquisition from the standpoint of, uh, you know, you don't, from an equipment manufacturer's perspective, you don't always understand exactly what's going in to these different projects. And suddenly we had all of the billing for, you know, a bunch of commercial systems that we could just look at and say, we know exactly how many times they rolled trucks to this, these sites. Wow. It is not a one-time-a-year thing. Um. And there's a ton of reactive maintenance that often needs to be done that uh, that's just hard for a financier to sort of wrap their head around the differences there. And it's a high bar to get them to move off of their standard model. But what we found a lot of success with in Latin America is that it's often very hard to get equipment. You know, the, there's the, the cost of rolling the truck is, is a little bit lower, uh, you know, often significantly lower. But you often can't get to some of these remote sites the equipment that you need in a timeline such that you're not missing a large amount of, uh, of revenue from the generation of the site. So, you know, people would take us to, you know, you look at some of the locations where we've installed in Mexico and some of the, you know, projects by Ensolar. It's like you won't just be, you can't just go into your local uh, CED distributor warehouse and pick up the replacement inverters that you need. Uh -huh. If you have street inverters, like you're gonna have to wait. You know, you look at Puerto Rico. You gotta. I loved talking to uh, Sonapar there because you talk about what the process is to get a piece of equipment onto the island, and you're like, this is not exactly a. Um, this is not something you run out and fix tomorrow. This is like a two week process, and in yeah. that meantime, your plant is down for those especially two weeks. Especially if it's a specialized process. Especially if it's equipment that's not. Uh, already that you're already buying from a local distributor like Sonapar. Yeah, exactly. If it's not already in their warehouse, you know, you you have a, a lead time to try and get it there. So which is to say, so that was a yeah. I was gonna say, which is to say, like if you are trying to scale, like Maximo or or some of the other customers that we've discussed, um, and you don't necessarily want to buy through distribution, or you want to use a product that isn't being sold at, at sort of through distribution necessarily, but it, you consider it the best product then let's say that's a, you know, name your essential inverter or name your string inverter that isn't being carried by one of the three distributors on the island, you could get stuck. Yeah, yeah. Or you carry a huge inventory cost, which is what we were talking about before. Right. And it's tough to, yeah. And there's a whole other kind of area of, uh, you know, there's like the whole, how does this work in a finance model? And then there's this whole, you know, kind of how does a simplified piece of inventory work in as you say, like a residential installer who's really trying to scale and build a repeatable business where, you know, they're not trying to do custom work at every single house that they go to and, and resize systems all the time, but they want a piece of equipment that they can pull off the shelf and will work for any of their systems. You know, there's a whole nother sort of value proposition. Yeah. I'm curious about what things you see that are like common sense and also on the fringe now in the US or in Europe that Latin America is going to have to deal with 
pretty soon or that you anticipate were going to become part of the conversation that perhaps a an SMA is not anticipating or can't address? That's a very good question. I, you know, I think when I, when I was spending a lot of time down there, is you were, and I think you know we had Maximo come to uh, Maximo himself come to to Mexico and speak to some installers, and I think what we always were finding is that it's still very much in like looking at each individual installation and trying to say like what's the lowest cost equipment on this particular installation. When in the U.S. and what Maximo found in Puerto Rico was that that was the wrong way to look at it. And the right way to look at it is you're going to do 100 installations this month. What is my lowest cost of being able to do 100 installations? And so then you're looking, so you're, you're often spending a lot of kind of overhead trying to maximize each individual installation. And this is really what's happened in the U.S. is, you know, you've shifted away from, you know, who you're going to have an average profit margin across these hundred deals. What equipment and what practices are you going to deploy to maximize that average profit margin across all the deals and stop looking at the profit margin on each individual deal? Right. So that's probably, you know, as, and that's what happens in a maturing market, right? So you have Mexico where you've got some installers who are doing smaller volumes of deals and you can spend the time to try and uh, maximize each individual but that doesn't work at scale. And so as folks, you know, and I think Galt has kind of recognized it and some others have kind of recognized it, that as you want to deploy huge amounts, you have to think about that entire like life cycle cost of the installation, including you know, Galt, when we used to spend a lot of time together, Jose and I sort of trying to understand what will be their replacement costs over time? What is it, what's the value of customer service? How do they, um, what happens if they have a couple bad referrals because they put bad equipment on the site? And Jose was really good about recognizing the risk that is inherent there. Uh, so you have sort of both sort of the upfront, upfront operations, the installation operations, and the post-installation customer service that are all impacted by some of these choices that folks make. And they're very different when you're talking about doing 10 deals a month versus doing 100 deals a month. That's awesome. Awesome. Yeah. That was awesome. You've told me a couple of, uh, of cool stories, and I'd love to know if you have any stories, but I'm looking at the list yeah. of questions that I have, and the last two are the ones I really want to um, leave on. And the one that came to me while I was uh, thinking through this list was, broadly speaking, you've looked at a bunch of deals, and now moving over to Spruce, you're looking at a lot more. What do you yeah. see over and over that either t that are, uh, that are indicators that a deal is going well or conversely, like what do you see new people in the industry when they get in, which you saw in Enphase all the time, doing yeah. wrong, or that you are like, oh god, they're going to learn this in, in six months from now, and they're everybody keeps doing the same dumb thing. So it's a good question. I think a a, a lot of what we saw being a challenge is that. People want to sell, often want to sell on like a cost per watt basis. And as, a, as an equipment manufacturer, that's an important thing to be thinking about. But the sales, the sales practice and in, in like the large commercial engagement practice was often we can build this cheaper for you than someone else can build it. And 
people often thought, I think, thought they were competing on this cost perspective. Right. And that's very natural in, in sort of an emerging industry, uh, you know, as, as you're taking sort of a new technology to a new environment like Latin America, trying to think about, all right, what are the dimensions upon which you compete? One of the key ones is, one of the most obvious ones is cost. But one of the key ones is value, right? So thinking about what is the real value and the real value proposition of these commercial projects that you're offering. And so I think what would get lost in some of these negotiations that we would see is being able to come up with a multifaceted value proposition so that you, when you're in there talking to the commercial, uh, well, talking to a business whose core competency is not their energy procurement, but sees an opportunity to reduce costs that you can present a value proposition that resonates with their CFO, that resonates with uh, their facilities maintenance folks, that resonates across kind of the value chain. And so that you're not always competing, what you wanna get away from is, is thinking about being, you know, a penny per watt cheaper than the next commercial guy who's gonna come in and pitch you. But you're really thinking about how are we gonna support, what, what are you afraid of in putting these solar systems on your commercial buildings or, or your commercial and industrial buildings or your warehouse, if you own a, you know, a set of warehouses in Puerto Rico, what do you wanna see out of a service provider that goes above and beyond you know, finding the lowest cost provider? Because I think it's a lot of that, that more complex sale that you see emerge in, in uh, markets over time when people realize that it's more than being the lowest cost provider and that uh, that you would see often, you know, there'd be so much focus on that upfront cost. So that's, that would be one thing that I felt like I was seeing more and more as we would look at, as we would look at newer markets, and then it would slowly transition to being really a, a comprehensive value sale as markets matured over time. And people understood that kind of, that solar panels, you know, have benefits, and they also have risks, and you need to find someone who can help mitigate those risks. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I spent when I was a, a um, Latin American regional manager for, for Trina, I spent so much time just, uh, well, it probably comes from my Peace Corps background of doing uh, facilitation and training or, of business owners on how to do business better. But I felt like we came in with a consultative sale, myself in particular, and it sounds like that's what you guys yeah. did at Enphase or do. We would, I, I would come in and just sit down and say, how are you going to sell to this guy? And I'd listen to their pitch, and I would help them tweak it. And I didn't try to sell them on. I rarely tried to sell them on the value or quality of Trina. Yeah. I just said, "Hey, I don't know about my other competitors, but I'm going to help you close this deal." And yeah, uh, and I watched. Uh, I mean, if you had a conversation, for example, with Fortius, a company that I worked with quite a bit, uh, the guy yeah, Sergio. Yeah, those guys. Yeah. So Fortus is a is an electromechanical uh, installer, like a like a Rosenden, uh, out of Guadalajara. Oh, okay. No, I guess but, but if you talk yeah. to Sergio, uh, the founder, he calls me maestro. <laughs> he yeah. he's like you know Nico came in and gave us a half day course on how to sell solar, and it's true. Uh, I spent a lot of time with him, just saying, hey, here's the here's the mindset that you need to have to be able to scale your team. Um, and there's a lot of what we talked about on, on today's call. Um, yeah, I think that's, uh, I mean, that's always uh, trying to, th I mean, what you were doing with them, obviously, is a very consultative sale. And that's ultimately what, uh, you know, developers need to do as well when they're trying to engage with commercial customers. And it's, it is a lot of education about the technology and 
different points of value that they might not be thinking about. It's an elite sales conversation, but exactly. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, just as a parting thought, if you if you had considered or uh, apart from the securitization stories, if you have anything that particularly resonates as a story that uh, that you want to tell. My favorite story is really maybe more about uh, Luis and, um, and sort of his team, but it was it was a meeting with uh, I'll just say a Panamanian installer, uh, perhaps Ensolar. <laughs> we had a really high level meeting at SPI with um, with our CEO Luis. I was there, and then you know at the last minute we had our we have a great team obviously in Latin America, and, and one of our FAEs joined the meeting. What does that mean? And this uh, field application engineers. Okay. So, you know, he's a newer hire. He's probably been to our corporate offices maybe twice. I mean, he barely knows anyone. And he was in the room as well because he had, you know, been working with Ensolar. But nobody really knew who he was uh, or had spent much time with him, especially not kind of at the, the senior level of, of Enphase. And, uh, and, so the CEO and Solar is, you know, a very, uh, he's a great guy, very affable, and he walks in the meeting, and I mean, this is all kind of my recollection, but he basically walks like right past Paul Nahi and walks right up to this guy that none of the senior people in the room knew and gave him a hug, and you know, went on to tell this story about their one of their big early deals where they had. You know, a super high profile in Panama, um, and they they were not sure when they flipped the switch if it was going to work, and they everyone was just so nervous, and they realized that they had Eroberto realized, and they were going to flip the switch and, and like show the system operating to the owner of the system, or there was some situation like this, and they realized Eroberto realized from using Enphase that they had a panel that was out and they were going to sort of be embarrassed in front of the customer and this was a pilot site and they were hoping to roll it out to a bunch of folks afterwards. Right. And so Eroberto helped them identify it in advance of, of whatever the issue was. And in their mind, it sort of saved this, this set of projects. And I loved watching kind of uh, some of those service teams because it's, it's another element where you don't always think about, you know, the, the potential ways that your equipment supplier ends up helping you out. And, um, and that was sort of the way this, this high profile meeting started with blowing off our CEO and going straight to, uh, the lowest the guy on the totem pole in the room, the lowest guy on the totem pole, but you know, awesome. it kind of shows the importance of having a strong team that's supporting in these installations. Yeah. So, uh, for the purpose of clarity, that guy had been, um, with, he had been within phase when he had troubleshoot, troubleshooted this problem already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he had been a, a recent member of the team, but you know, no one at, at really the corporate offices knew who he was. Got it. Yeah. Despite his like having jumped in and helped fix problems immediately. Yeah, exactly. That's great. This episode is brought to you in collaboration with Enphase Energy as we explore what it takes to launch and grow successful solar companies in Latin America. To learn more or hear other episodes in the series, visit www.mysuncast.com forward slash Enphase. That's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors, and you're now well-armed for battle. Hopefully, you'll take away some great tools for your own success. I'd love it if you'd share what you learned or share the episode over on LinkedIn. Let me know what other tools you need. 
If you want to sharpen the axe a little bit more, I've shared some of the resources we discussed in today's conversation over at mysuncast.com. Just click on the latest episode link in the title bar. Perhaps the best tool in your arsenal might be subscribing to the mailing list while you're there so that you'll get an email from yours truly when new content is available. Have a suggestion for someone you think should join the conversation? Email me, nico at mysuncast.com or shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Hey, that's it. Thanks for being here. Until next time, stay informed, my friend, and stay tuned.